Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to your favorite Friday weekly show, Felony Friday, right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. This is the show where each and every week we bring you a brand new podcast that tries to shine a light on a different aspect of the broken criminal justice system. This week, I'll be speaking with Anwar, who recently found himself in some serious trouble with the law. And for that reason, I cannot say his last name on this episode. With that being said, most of you probably have no idea who Anwar is and are not familiar with his story. But I think Anwar's story is so important and because I think it's so relatable to the different trials and tribulations that people go through in the criminal justice system. And for this reason, I've decided to dedicate two episodes to talk about Anwar's story. For the first part of the show, for today's episode, I guess it'll be a little different than normal. We're actually not going to be talking too much about the failures of the criminal justice system. So we're actually going to be setting up, we'll be talking about that in part two of this interview with Anwar. In part one, what you're going to hear about, you're going to hear about how Anwar started from nothing in a diverse Chicago neighborhood and built a business that became the centerpiece of the community. Then in part two, we'll get into the decisions that have placed Anwar in some really serious trouble. He's facing significant time behind bars, but we're going to talk about the really powerful and optimistic way that he is responding to that impending imprisonment. He hasn't been sentenced yet for uh, the time that he's going to be serving, but in the meantime, he's been doing charity work and some things that we'll get into later that are just amazing. So I'll introduce Anwar shortly here, and I'm excited to uh, start the interview. But before I do that, I just want to let you guys know of a way that you can help out the Lions of Liberty podcast, a way that you can support the show and help to spread the message of liberty. You can do this by visiting IgniteLiberty.us. Visit this site, and you can find at this site a Make Liberty Great Again snapback hat. And we have an exclusive deal for Lions of Liberty podcast listeners. Enter the discount code LIBERTY at checkout for 10% off your order. A large portion of the profits from your order will go right back into this podcast. So if you've been looking for a way to help out this podcast, this is the way to do it. And we would really, really appreciate it. We have two different designs that we're offering of the hat. We have a design, a very cool design, circular kind of retro logo design. Make Liberty Great Again. Kind of looks like almost like a retro beer label. Really cool design. The other design, Make Liberty Great Again, features the Statue of Liberty. Very cool design also. These are bold, eye-catching hats, and you will not regret picking them up. They're conversation starters. And if you're looking for a way to wear the ideas of liberty, this is the way to do it. Let people know where you stand. Let people know that you stand for liberty. And help out the Lions of Liberty podcast at the same time. So please... Don't hesitate. Stop by IgniteLiberty.us, pick out your favorite design, enter promo code LIBERTY at checkout, and be on your way. Second of all, of course, this is the 36th episode of Felony Friday, so that means you can find the show notes with links and notes to everything that we're going to talk about at LionsofLiberty.com slash FF36. And without further ado, here is my interview 
Amar is an entrepreneur from Chicago. He made some bad choices, some bad decisions that resulted in the FBI knocking on his door and ultimately resulted in a conspiracy charge, which he's dealing with right now. Once out on bond, though, Anwar started from scratch. He disassociated himself from his prior lifestyle that got him in trouble. As soon as getting out on bond, he worked, saved money, started a nonprofit, and began to put together some charity events as well. Anwar, welcome to Felony Friday. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. And you actually reached out to me. You reached out to us here at Lions of Liberty saying you wanted to share your story. And I've checked out your blog. I've checked out your story. And uh, I think it's something that, you know, our audience, the Felony Friday audience really, really can learn from. And I know there's a lot of people out there going through similar things. So that's why I wanted to have you on to talk about it. Before we do get into your story, though, and get into where you got in trouble with the law, you know, what led to the FBI coming to your door, I do just want to start out with, I normally ask all my guests, you know, where'd you grow up? And uh, I guess two-part question, where'd you grow up and how'd you first get interested in entrepreneurship? Okay, yeah. So I grew up in the north side of Chicago. It was primarily a very diverse uh, neighborhood of Rogers Park which is, I believe, labeled the most diverse neighborhood in the city, everywhere from black, white, Hispanic, Asian, like the, you know, they say Chicago is the most segregated cities in Chicago, but this particular neighborhood kind of um, is the opposite, where it's just a big, a big, like, melting pot of everybody. Entrepreneurship, I guess, for me, had started growing up. I didn't really have, I came from immigrant parents, first of all. My dad's from Pakistan, my mom's Mexican, which is a very uh, rare mix. So they met here in Chicago and, you know, having, being uh, raised by them, you know, they had several different types of jobs. My mom, you know, worked everywhere from hotels to being a maid, to being a nanny, to like a lot of, you know, wealthy families. And um, my father was, you know, a cab driver, but always had, the passion for entrepreneurship and I was always trying different things, but unfortunately just never really had the, you know, the niche for it. So anyways, I started off by, you know, growing up and not really having anyone to guide us, so to speak. And, you know, seeing my father struggle and try this and that and and me just, you know, watching him. And I was really, um, you know, curious into what exactly he was trying to do. So long story short, I started off as uh, me and my brother were into music and we uh, started a DJ, a DJ company playing music at different parties and things like that. That was around like when I was around 16 years old. And fast forward four years later, I opened up my first retail store called The Basement. And that's basically how I got into entrepreneurship was you know, I saved some money and I had some credit cards and just seeing a Ford rent sign, you know, by my old school in my same neighborhood and, you know, call them. And then, I mean, there was a lot more to it than that, but I gave you the fast version. But yeah, that's how I got into it. I just really wanted to be independent and I just never really was a school person. So that made me um, kind of get familiar with it just, just to jump right into it, you know, instead of just studying it and taking my time and really to learn about it. I just went ahead and did it. My philosophy back then was, you know, if I mess up, I'll learn. 
and you know learn from my mistakes if anything happens which i made plenty of those <laughs> that's a good philosophy to have i'm curious just to backtrack for a minute so the dj business was that djing like djing weddings and events and what gave you the idea to start that well me and my brother and like the, the circle we grew up with we were really into the hip-hop culture and a lot of it had to do with like you know like graffiti graffiti art breakdancing and things like that so most people that are in the culture you know they, they get into some sort of uh another the other art of it which is djing and you know rapping and you know just there's various other uh different avenues to choose from my brother since he's always had a passion for the dj he's the one that took the first step and um bought his dj equipment you know we, we were both working at dominic's which was a uh, like a food store a grocery store and uh you know he just bought some dj equipment and me just being his little brother just i just followed in his footsteps and since the equipment was always at the house i just you know practiced it practiced using it and you know bought records and about, you know, recording equipment, just, you know, kind of like different gadgets, you know, to make the music that we were listening to at the time. And as far as DJing, there was a variety of ways to do it. But yeah, throwing parties, you know, actually DJing for the parties was an avenue to generate uh, revenue. And uh, that's kind of what led us to, you know, what led me to take this stuff further. But my brother was the one that first, you know, bought the whole like sound system rig the turntable break and kind of like ready to throw a party, you know, with all the stuff he had. And mind you, we were all in my mom's basement at the time. And it was a two bedroom apartment with like speakers everywhere. It was, it was pretty chaotic, but he did it. And my brother Imran was actually the person that put me on to, to your show. So it's pretty uh, ironic. Well, thank you to your brother for that. That's awesome. When you go from DJing to starting the basement you know, you said you funded that with a little bit of cash you saved up and credit cards. So how did you kickstart your business? Other than obviously, you know, it was a brick and mortar business, right? So so buying the space, how did you start marketing and, and getting word out for what you were doing? Oh, good question. Okay, so I'll, I'll just give you a little, another um, backstory too. So that was when we were um, in the basement of my, uh, in Rogers Park as well. And then we had moved to uh, my father which he was driving a cab, he had won a medallion, which in the taxi world, you know, that was a, a big deal because um, a medallion basically gives you the right to have your own car and there's no more leasing your cab from someone. So he had won it. And as soon as he won it, he sold it. So with that money, he went and he put a down payment on the townhouse, which wasn't too far from where we were, we were already at. Fast forward from that, that's when my brother and I continued to take the DJ business like and really put our heart and soul into it. And with that new house, we had a basement. And in that basement, we decided to, well, I decided I was mainly on the recording production side and my brother just kept the DJ and audio uh, sound. And that's what he went to school for too when he graduated from Columbia, Columbia College right here in Chicago. And he got into that. So what I did with my mom's basement we just turned it into a recording studio, you know, long story short. And we would have people come in and, you know, have uh, recordings and I would have, you know, a mixer and we would have a sound booth and people would come and record. And, you know, I was really, you know, I was the one of those kids that had a dream to, you know, become a big time producer. And, you know, that was the, the long term goal. And 
But again, I was a teenager. This was around I was 16, 17 years old, and I didn't really know what I was doing. I just we were just having fun and enjoying being creatives and just being, you know, no responsibility, living with mom. It was kind of not really a big deal because I didn't really take it too serious, but it took it serious enough to have a little recording pre-production studio in the in the basement and we would, you know, make music, you know, produce, make the music that you hear on the radio. We had all the equipment for that, like an MPC 2000, keyboards, you know, computer systems, you know, to record like Pro Tools. That's why I asked you which ones, what recording software do you use for yours? Because I have a big background in recording and making mixtapes was a big, was a big thing for us at the time because, you know, obviously the internet wasn't that big back then. So would make a living I'm making these mixtapes and selling them on the street. Um, mixtapes. There's probably kids listening to this show right now that have no idea what the heck you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. What's a mixtape? <laughs> yeah, mixtape was, you know, and, and at the time it was still mixtapes on CD, but the, the term mixtape just has been in the culture for so long. We we'll just right. call it mixtapes, but mixtapes on CD versions, which we were still doing tapes back then. And this was like 97, 98. So the mixtape was still relevant. So how did you transition from the basement at your parents' house to opening that first store? Okay, so a good question. So at that point in my life, I really had no direction. And again, I was making beats, but I didn't really know what I was going to do. I had no, I didn't really have a plan. We were just, again, having fun with it. So that's when I got arrested for the first time for um, vandalism. We were really big on the graffiti, on the graffiti scene and I don't know, I don't want to bore you with graffiti, but basically it totally has nothing to do with gang affiliation. It's just an art form that we had just to get famous without, you know, posting up, you know, basically it's the same thing as a billboard, except billboards pay all these millions of dollars. And here we are, you know, putting our name on the same billboard for free. So that was kind of like the short version of the goal of that. Long story short, I get arrested. My father is furious. So he sends me to uh, California with my uncle. And for about six months, I lived with him. And um, he kind of straightened me out. And um, he's basically my mentor that I was missing that whole time. And, you know, I just told him, um, he taught me everything. And this is a big part of it because this is how I got my, my store open and everything. I was 17 years old. As soon as I got there, he told me everything about, you know, how to build your credit how to, um, you know, what to do with your money, how to be a good person, just everything from A to Z. He mentored me in business, but he mentored me in life, more importantly. So he got me my first credit card. It was a Macy's credit card. They gave me like $75. I went to Macy's. He made me buy like like a couple of T-shirts and then he made me pay it. He made me pay it right away as soon as the bill came. Uh, he was also the finance director at Dodge and he got me a job as a car salesman. So Learning that at the age of 17 was a big deal for me because it kind of just threw me in to uh, just learning how to work with people and how the real world works and, you know, how to like be a salesman, which is very important in life, I believe. And again, it was a really, a, you know, it was only six months of my life, but that six months changed my life for a very long time. So six months later, I come back, I get a car salesman job here and, you know, I do very well, by the way because I'm, I'm fluent in Spanish. So that's kind of like my, um, a gift that I had because my mom taught, taught us that growing up. And uh, I learned the language. So that's how I got a lot of the sales from selling cars. So anyways, I realized that car salesman wasn't for me. I ended up selling Hondas for about six months here in Chicago. 
But like I said, after the six months, uh, I knew that car salesman wasn't my thing. I knew it was something great that I learned and I used it for what I needed to as far as like being a salesman and, you know, being um, just learning about how to talk to people, how to make deals and things like that. So anyways, I quit the car business. And again, I get back to my real passion, which is, you know, being an entrepreneur, but being an entrepreneur and loving what you do. And that's when I started getting this idea about, you know, taking my studio to the next level. So here I go. I got this, you know, I got this credit now. You know, I get other credit cards in the mail. I'm getting like, you know, $500 limits, $1,000 limits here, you know, 2000 here, 1000 there. So I'm building my portfolio in a way and building my like personal credit uh, score up. And mind you, at the time, I'm the only kid that's doing this. All of my other friends, you know, they have these jobs, just random type of jobs. Not, you know, nobody's really there showing them, you know, how to build your credit, you know, how to pay your taxes, you know, what that is. You know, just really living like a average Joe type of life. And I, that was like my fear is I didn't want to live in that way. So I tried the college thing around that time, too, because, again, I was trying to, you know, better my life, seeing what I could do. But I did like two semesters and then I dropped out. And then that's when I started really taking the studio business and the DJ business, really taking it serious and from what I thought at the time, they went hand in hand, being a DJ and having a studio. So basically, I was throwing parties at the time, and I was also owning the studio in my mom's house. So at the time, like I said, they were both related, but me, you know, 20 years later, that, that was, you know, I would never have done that. But anyways, I learned from that, and we were throwing parties and making a lot of noise in my mom's house. This is how I really got started into the entrepreneurship. So we had thrown this... um it was an MC battle is what we were doing. Similar to Eminem's 8 Mile, you know, the concept was, you know, do a rap battle, you win $1,000. After I did my first one, which was in 2001, it was a success. I made like $3,000 or something like that. And at this point, I'm working at like The Gap or some little small job just to like make ends meet. Maybe let's take it to the point... Because, you know, something changed in your life, right? You're focused here. You're focused on, you know, growing as a person, becoming a better person, building up your credit. Yeah. Um, you're really getting involved in entrepreneurship. Then uh, at least on your, you know, I read your webpage and you talk about making some bad decisions. Okay. Right about the same time the economy went Yeah, bad. yeah. I want to get to that, but I just, uh, just want to like get to like how I got into the entrepreneurship, which is real fast. So I'll just continue. Yeah, so. yeah, sure. Go for it. So one of my life-changing events was when my father and I went to his native land in Pakistan. And I went over there and we stood there for about two weeks. I was there with my family and getting to meet people. And I went there when I was a very young child. But going there when you were 20 years old, you really see the opportunities that are there. But more importantly, the opportunities that are not there. And from, you know, seeing, you know, kids, you know, homeless kids and all the poverty that I seen out there, that shifted my brain in a way that I'll never forget because all I know is I told my uncles over there and my father, I said, you know what? I'm all over the place in Chicago. You know, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I got this little DJ thing going. I, I got my little studio going, but I don't know. When I get back to the States, I'm going to do something because believe it or not, you know, this country, you know, we are a little spoiled and, you know, 
this is one of the best countries in the world if you want to do something and make something out of yourself without, you know, getting involved with, you know, things that you don't want to do. So as soon as we get back from that trip, I see a sign on the candy store I used to go to when I was in grammar school and I seen a for rent sign and that drew a light bulb. So since my parents were getting mad about all the noise that was happening in their house and, you know, and my brother's speakers all over the place, I said, hey, this is what we'll do. We'll rent that place out. We were making mixtapes at the time. We'll rent that place out. We'll have the studio in the back. Okay. In the front, we'll sell the mixtapes that we make. And then we'll sell other people's music as well. On top of that, now we can take my brother's speakers that are all over my mom's house. And I'm talking about he had like four subwoofers, four tops, you know, mixers everywhere, cords, you name it. So the idea was to do three in one, move all that stuff out of my mom's, you know, have a place where we can sell our product and then actually make our product. And that'll be our office slash studio. So that was the idea of the basement, moving from my mom's basement to literally another basement because the storefront, how it was set up, there was a stairs going down maybe like around six, seven steps. So it was technically a uh, kind of like a small basement, but it was just um, ironic how we were just in the same neighborhood. We knew everybody in the neighborhood and, you know, that was kind of like a dream come true. You know, I was 20 years old. It was 2002. And, you know, at that point I had like $10,000 of credit and I had $3,000 cash saved up from like the parties that we threw. And I just said, hey, you know, like I'm not going to school. I'm not doing anything. That trip changed my life. Like I just told myself, you better do something because we're blessed to be in this country. You know, as, as much as a lot of people are very disappointed in this country, that's one thing that, you know, I got to give it to this country is visiting a, such a poor country, like my father's country, Pakistan. It's really a life changer. And, um, you know, I'll never forget that experience. So that was the whole purpose. That was a whole like backstory of how I got into entrepreneurship. I like that story a lot. And I especially like, you know, that your motivation came from seeing how bad things are, how there's not as many opportunities in other countries in a place like Pakistan. And a lot of people in the United States, you know, don't understand this. They talk about the 1%, you know, the 1% that controls everything in the United States, the elite 1%. Well, if you live in the U.S. and you make like more than, I don't know, it's like thirty dollars or $35,000 a year, then you're in the 1% in the world. I mean, there's incredible opportunities here. This country has a lot of problems. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but there's incredible opportunities and people often forget that. And just I, th I think it's easier to complain than to take advantage of the opportunities like you have by starting your businesses. Thank you. Yeah. And that's exactly what you know, I was going to say is a lot of people, there is a lot of problems here, but, you know, it's. It's tough, you know. I mean, you got me can make something or it can, you know, it could ruin you. And that's kind of the situation where I'm at in my life right now. So what happened? I mean, you've opened this store. I guess first before we get to that, how did you monetize stuff at the store? Were you selling mixtapes? Were you renting out the studio for people to record? A little bit of both, or what was your uh, your model there for making money? Great question. So you kind of nailed it. It was uh, a little bit of everything, you know. So they, there I am, you know, and mind you, I'm by myself and I have a few friends that are helping out, you know, just to like you know, they're around, you know, they're kind of like not, you know, they don't have any money, but they're hoping, you know, this, I'll take everyone to the promised land, you know, and they're all like, other guys are, you know, they're uh, artists as well. Like, you know, I have like my, my graffiti crew still there with me. I got my, 
my rappers with me. I have, you know, and these are all good guys, you know, dudes I grew up with and, you know, just very, uh, just very nice guys and, you know, guys that, you know, I went to high school with and, you know, they were my homies, uh, so to speak. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they were just around, but at the end of the day, it was me and it was only me that, you know, put all their credit up and put, you know, all the money that I had up for this. So, you know, a lot of pressure. The, the pressure started from day one. And this is when my life of uh, of being uh, my business stressful, like, just basically the whole, it was February 1st, 2002. And that's when my days of entrepreneurship started. Like, So what I did was, since I was making the mixtapes, I sold my mixtapes. My kind of mixtapes were like underground hip hop. So like I would have people that you couldn't really get at like a Best Buy or at the time with Sam Goody and coconuts and things like that. So why would people come to our store was because that we made these mixtapes. Being the person that I am and always being proactive, I also made some phone calls and began to call the record labels so I can sell their music here. And I got acquainted with everybody in the industry that way as well. So I had people from Universal Records come in. I had people from Capitol, all the local reps that uh, would service, you know, the city's DJs and the other stores. They would come to my store and service me as well. So here here we go. We have, you know, and, and I started reading books at this point as well. So one term I remember was the MPCs, which were multiple profit centers. And in business, they say you are supposed to have a few multiple profit centers and each profit center is supposed to make you a certain amount of money. So profit center number one was obviously the music, the retail side. This was what the store was, was it was a retail store. It was, it was called the basement music and more. So yeah, we sold music. So we sold CDs at the time we had some tapes, DVDs, that was more or less what the store was. And we had vinyl as well, since I was a DJ and I wanted to cater to that demographic as well. So as far as retail, that was the main component. The second NPC was my art supplies, AKA graffiti supplies. So since I was really heavily into the graffiti uh, scene and the graffiti culture, we had sold a lot of like sketchbooks, Prisma markers, and pretty much all the things a typical art gallery, I mean, I'm sorry, an art store would sell, but more reference towards the graffiti and, you know, that type of market. And believe it or not, this ended up being like about 40% of my business down the line, but and we'll get to that later if we can. But yeah, so that was profit center number two. Number three was my studio. You know, we would charge $30 an hour. You can come in. Any point of the day, as long as we were open and you can come in and record, you know, either your own personal CD, whether you had your music, you wanted to just record it, we could do that. You can buy one of our instrumentals for like a couple of hundred bucks, you know, would sign over the rights to you. And that would be another profit center, which is selling an individual exclusive music to an artist. But that was uh, the third profit center, which was recording studio it was $30 an hour. And you could basically do whatever you want. And I was there to record you and, you know, get you set up on the mic. And even if you wanted to record like karaoke style things, like we did a lot of that, like people would just use popular um, instrumentals and they would just rap or sing over it. So that was the third uh, multiple profit center. My fourth was, and this is me, my early stages of ADD, which I get diagnosed after I get indicted. 
But and I, I believe that has a lot to do with this whole thing. But anyways, so don't know. The fourth one was I was dating my ex girlfriend at the time, and she was in the cell phone business, and she had this idea to sell cell phones in the store. <laughs> so here goes another thing: cell phones. So we in the corner of the store we had like a little cell phone section, which we had like an account with Sprint and T-Mobile at the time, and she would just be in charge of that. I didn't really want to be doing that, even though there was a lot of money in it. I knew that my heart and soul was the store and the music. So yeah, so there goes like five profit centers, as well as like I had um, arcade games in there. So like Mortal Kombat, Street Fighter, Pac-Man. And I worked out a deal with the local arcade person. And every month we would split whatever um, quarters would come in from people just playing the video games. And I was around like five different schools. It kind of made sense, especially because the store that I rented out, that was my old candy store, which also had the video games, the video game concept as well. So so you turned your store really into like a destination for almost anybody. I mean, almost anybody could, you know, find something to buy there, be it people doing graffiti, people making music, being just kids walking down the street looking for something to do to play video games. Yes, that's that's pretty cool. But it also brings in, I'm sure, with all these different people that brought in some problems with it too. Maybe uh, is that where where some of the bad decisions came in? How did that work its way into your life? To be honest with you, I was very uh, happy as far as the people that were coming in because that kind of like brought some kind of unity to the neighborhood. I would just have random people. I have, you know, literally like the most gangsterous guy come in smelling like weed and just really, really bad guy. But he comes in with so much respect buys like you know a cd and maybe a t-shirt and then right next to that guy is like a super like like nerdy kid and they both are in my store it's just it's just a a very rare scene but you know to be honest with you it kind of um unified the neighborhood because when they were there they had a lot of respect for me and um they just you know as far as that point was concerned that was not i mean what did bring from that was like I said, you know, me being diagnosed with ADD and not knowing what I had at the time, I didn't realize like I was doing too much at the time and I didn't know how to slow down and just relax and just, you know, take one step at a time, which is from what I believe the cause of my bad decisions down the line. And mind you, what I'm referring to right now are like the early stages. I'm 20, 21 years old and, you know, I'm fresh into this new business that I have. So, you know, I'm way it's far away from where the bad decisions came but i believe i mean not a really bad decision but bad business decisions were the things that i were doing because i believe i just took too much anyways what saved me from making more bad decisions was me being very consistent on studying and learning the craft of entrepreneurship so you know i would go to like barnes and nobles i would go to borders bookstores and um i would go there and really learn what successful people did because I was literally like going crazy, even though it was from the outside looking in, it looked like it was good, but I was being, being eaten up inside because of, you know, what I had to do I'm calling people from the cell phone, AT&T distributor. And then I'm calling the guy from the video game space. And then I'm ordering from the art supply distributor. And then, Oh, I have a meeting with the guy from Atlantic Atlantic records. So it's like, and you can see I'm all over the place. And this is where all the pressure started building from. And these weren't bad decisions, but this is what led me, I believe, 
to the bad decisions that were that were up in front of me. This concludes part one of my interview with Anwar. Please be sure to check back next week to hear the rest of Anwar's story and to find out how Lehman Brothers, a loan from Lehman Brothers, put him in a situation where he felt he had no other option than to turn to the drug trade to keep his business afloat. And ultimately, a knock on the door from the FBI changed his life forever, and he will uh, be paying the price for that, unfortunately. We'll get into that. We'll talk about that next week. Thank you all for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe and rate the show. Currently, we do have three episodes per week here at Lions of Liberty, here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, and we would love to have more shows. But the only way that we can do that is if this show continues to grow. And it has been growing, but would like it to grow faster and would like it to grow much bigger. So please help us to grow the show and help to advance the ideas of liberty by sharing this show on your social media networks. And it'll make it easier for you if you follow the Lions of Liberty on Twitter and like us on Facebook so you see our posts come out and just share them with your networks. Also, if you haven't yet, check out the Lions of Liberty forum. It's our private Facebook group. In order to join, if you'd like to join, just go to Facebook, type Lions of Liberty forum in the search bar, and we'll get you approved and get you right in. It is a great conversation every single day. Another way that you can support the show is to visit IgniteLiberty.us, and you can order there. You can order a Make Liberty Great Again hat. This is awesome. Make Liberty Great Again hats are cool because you know people do like a double take. They see the Make Liberty Great Again. They think, wait, is that Make America Great? Is that Trump? No, it's Liberty. What's that about? It's a great conversation starter. We have two different eye-catching designs. I really encourage you to check them both out. Head over to IgniteLiberty.us. Pick out your favorite design. Enter promo code LIBERTY at checkout for 10% off your order. We really appreciate it if you could do this. It would really help us out and help us to grow the show, which is what we're here to do. Thank you guys for listening. That's all I got for you today. As always, this is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fire is at liberty burning. <laughs>